Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. North London is red, City march on, Leicester hit five and United prove they're still better off without Moyes. I'm Dan Burke, this is the Premier League Weekend Review Podcast and I'm joined for this one by Arsenal fan Lewis Ambrose Hello. and Tottenham fan Matt Froelich. Good afternoon. So we're, uh, we're recording this remotely so unfortunately there won't be any post-Derby fisticuffs between you two but uh, a bit of verbal jousting is fine, just you know, keep it clean, <laughs> keep it all above board, you know. Uh, we're we're going to begin today at the Emirates where else uh, where Arsenal came from behind to beat Tottenham in Sunday's North London derby Uh, first question Lewis what did you make of Mikel Arteta's decision to drop Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang to the bench after the Arsenal skipper turned up late to the stadium yeah I mean obviously it was a big surprise when the lineups come out and Aubameyang wasn't in the team Um, enough of a punishment to not be in the team but not enough to not be in the squad Mm which is a little bit strange and sort of how you reckon with that one. And I think the question with this was always, is it is it a good punishment if you maybe punish the other players and you punish the fans by damaging your chances of winning as well? It's one of those situations, I guess, where it, it all depends on the result. Right now, we can all sit here and say that Arteta has played a blinder. He's gone and won the derby anyway, so everybody's happy and he can completely justify his decision if Arsenal had needed Aubameyang to come on and maybe not got a goal and lost or drawn then obviously there would have been question marks so he got away with it a little bit Arteta I guess and you can say got away with it you can credit him I would say probably got away with it a little bit and it meant none of the attention after the game was on that decision it was obviously a surprise but we've seen you know, Mesut Ozil, Matteo Ganduzi and, and others, that Mikel Arteta wants to run a tight ship. And I think a lot of people outside the club, by which I mean non-Arsenal fans, mm. probably think under Arsene Wenger in particular for a long time, things were maybe a little bit too easy and comfortable for Arsenal players. And clearly that isn't the case anymore. Yeah, I was, th- I was thinking when Arsenal went 1-0 down in this game, like, oh God, Arteta must be thinking, have I got to put Aubameyang on now? Um, has it been confirmed that it was because he was stuck in traffic? On the way to the ground? Not confirmed by the club, but confirmed by good enough sources. Um, I, I, I saw know, a picture I, on Twitter of, of him. Yeah. He was on the, he was him somewhere and his car was just, yeah, on the in the traffic. And his yeah, uh, hologram I, Lamborghini or whatever it is. Yeah. I guess, I guess Arsenal would say that well, all the, if all the other players got there on time, then he didn't, he just didn't leave early enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, the tra- yeah, traffic can happen, but I guess he didn't take that into account or leave early enough. Mm. And, as the captain on Derby Day, obviously, of all the people to turn up late for the team meeting, yeah, yeah. He, he can't be seen doing that, really. Yeah. Do you reckon that'll be the end of it now, or is there going to be a further punishment for him, do you think? Yeah, I'd be very surprised. Mikel Arteta wanted to, in his pre-match interview, he was already trying to brush it under the carpet. That's right, yeah, like yeah. He's, he's on the bench, that's the punishment, it's done, we've moved on. It's like, well, we haven't moved on, because we're playing a game in 20 minutes and he's not on the pitch. <laughs> um but yeah, yeah, he repeated it after the game as well. So it's very much done and dusted. And I think as long as we don't see any other misdemeanours, then that'll be that. Move on from it now, yeah. Yeah, well, onto the game itself. Hyung uh, Min Son had to go off injured for Spurs after 19 minutes. Matt, how big of a blow do you think it was for Spurs to lose him at that point in the game? I mean, it's always a blow to lose someone like Son. So yeah, the, mm. the earlier the worse, obviously. But it's been coming... He's played, I think he's played every single game this season. I think he started every single game. Um, and the guy just needs a break. And that was going to happen sooner rather than later. And especially the way that he plays with his explosive kind of turn of pace, like that was always going to happen. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of annoying. It happens 90 minutes into a derby. But it, it was a massive one because he, especially when Tottenham haven't been so good this season or haven't played very well, which has been quite uh, a lot more... That happened a lot more than I would have hoped for. Mm. You're always relying relying on the individual quality of a few players, and Kane and Son are at the top of that list. So, yeah, obviously to lose one of them is it's not fantastic. Mm. Well, of course, it- Son's Son's been the player in the derby the last few years that scared me the most as well. Any time, mm. like obviously people talk about Harry Kane, but for me, it's every time Son gets the ball, you're terrified that he's going to do something. Yeah, I thought when he went off, I thought, wow, that's uh, that's going to really damage Spurs what, now. What- what it does, like damaging Spurs' play, but also mentally a boost for Arsenal. Like it's twofold for both sides. Like those players would have inside been like, oh, thank God for that. 
Like knowing, <laughs> that one, one, knowing that Son isn't available. Yeah. Well, it was Eric Lamela who came on for Son, uh, and then he opened the scoring with that wonderful Rabona finish. Is that the goal of the season so far for you, Matt? Better than the uh, Ndombele one at Sheffield United? Oh, that was also mad, yeah. <laughs> the, the, weird, the weird thing about this, this finish is that usually when you pull off that sort of skill, you're usually digging it up so it kind of chips into the air. I found it very odd that he kind of, it was almost like he drilled it along the floor. Yeah. Instead of, because yeah, anyone who plays football will know when you do that skill, you tend to chip it. Mm. So I, it was kind of bizarre. When he was doing it, as he lined up, I thought, are oh, you prat? What are you doing from there? Just use your right foot, right, for anything, for something other than standing on. And then, yeah, just obviously into the far corner, it was a, it was a real surreal moment. Yeah, the XG on that goal was 0.03. So uh, that was just that little gap between Thomas. Paul yeah, and it must be. Yeah, that Ta- is mental. Taking your Arsenal hat off for a moment, Lewis. Would you say that was the goal of the season? Oh, I listened to a podcast yesterday, and they said you can't say it after you've just let one in in, in a derby. But Rabona's aren't impressive. They just mean a professional <laughs> can't kick with his, with his weak foot. Um, <laughs> true. I have been known to pull off a Rabona in a game and I'm terrible at football so yeah I'm sort of inclined <laughs> to agree with that to be honest with you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds very like your da I guess but load of nonsense yeah. kick with your weak yeah. foot <laughs> um, uh, uh, the best goal the best goal I've seen this season I think probably still I'd, I'd go with that Mohamed Salah goal the one at West Ham West Ham yeah yeah um, what, oh. the end of January so around then yeah that, that's the 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 best, the most unstoppable goal, I'd say. I'd yeah, say. we talked about that on the podcast, and Matt wasn't a fan of that one, were you, Matt? No, no. And the thing is that the more this gets like traction, the more people start to believe it, and that will probably end up winning the bloody Puskas Award. <laughs> like it was a good counter-attacking goal and a lovely finish, but like, oh my god, oh, that surely hasn't got a scratch. It's a great goal. Executed counter-attack. There's nothing better than it that. It was like the economy of it as well that I loved. Every touch meant something, yeah, didn't it? Every yeah. touch mattered. It was just like, you know, two, three touches from two players bang in the net, basically. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, I, I think you've seen that kind of goal before. I can't, like, I mean, I don't think Undombele's against Sheffield United is going to win goal of the season, but that is so unique. In, in its kind of execution that I think it kind of deserves a bit more credit. Yeah, it was, a, there you go. It, it was a fluke, that one. We all know now that. Now that he's looking <laughs> crossing the box, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Arsenal got back level in this game with a Martin Odegaard equaliser right before half-time. Uh, Lewis, do you like what you've seen from Odegaard so far and do you expect him to make that loan move permanent in the summer? Yeah, I think he's been fantastic. And I think something that was so nice about Sunday is a lot of people, a lot of Arsenal fans have been talking about maybe can you get the best out of Odegaard and Smith-Rowe in the same team? And are they compatible? Do they fit together? Obviously, Odegaard signed when Smith-Rowe had just started playing in that number 10 position in January. And people, I guess, were worried that he was going to take minutes away. And you saw on on Sunday afternoon that both of them were really, really good, really impressive. And they obviously can play together. It would be massive for Arsenal if they could keep him in the summer. I don't know if if they can. Um I think that really will depend on Real Madrid and who's the manager there. And if it's Zidane, then maybe there's a chance. It, it would be fantastic for Arsenal. He's such a good player. He he brings so much creativity. He presses so well. He works so hard. Um, it, yeah, like I say, it would be huge. Mm. It would be expensive, I imagine. And that might be the problem. Yeah. Speaking of Smith Rowe as well, that might have been a goal of uh, the season contender for him if if that one went in in the, the crossbar in the first half, wouldn't it? So, oh, what a strike! Yeah. Um, so right, okay, this is going to be an interesting one. I think uh, Arsenal took the lead from the penalty spot in the second half after Davinson Sanchez was a judge to have brought down Alex Lacazette in the box. Um, I was pretty baffled that many people didn't think this was a penalty. Uh, I'll come to you first, Matt. What was your take on it? Um, it, it is a penalty because you kind of just apply the letter of the law to it that there was contact and he brought him down. It's just so ridiculous that it happened because he missed the ball. <laughs> I mean, it's so unfortunate. That's the word I'm using because if you, yeah, if you just objectively look at it and say there's been contact between Emerson Sanchez's foot and Lacazette, but if he makes contact with the ball, his foot doesn't swing across his body so violently and he doesn't go anywhere near Sanchez. <laughs> I just It's so annoying when you see that kind of movement towards the player because, yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about this the other day. What would be the best way of showing it? You know in cricket where they show like where the ball would have ended up before <laughs> LBW? If you were to see where Sanchez would have ended up, right, he would have just slid right past Lacazette. He wouldn't have taken his standing leg, nothing. 
But because Lacazette's leg has flown across his body because he scuffed the ball, it's actually hit Sanchez. And it's just, it, it's, a, it's a penalty because of the contact, but it's so unfortunate. But I suppose, Lewis, if you, uh, if you go in like that in the box like Sanchez did, you kind of risk, run the risk of, of giving away a penalty, do you not? Yeah, I do. it comes to me then it comes to like sort of you make your own luck sort of thing mm. and or you make your own bad luck in this case I guess and the way that he dives across Lacazette is he's just sort of asking for trouble and you know that as soon as he does that if there's any kind of contact it's the refs you know you've jumped in off the ground the refs probably going to give a foul and we know that as soon as there's any sort of contact and the refs giving it the, the VAR doesn't deem it a clear and obvious enough error, even if people don't think mm. it's a penalty, to take it back. So, <clears throat> oh, um, getting emotional thinking about <laughs> um, yeah, You can't even I, say this with a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, think, I think if Harry Maguire or David Luiz, or the players that have maybe a bit more of a reputation for being ridiculous and giving stupid fouls away, do that, then I don't even think that debate would have been there. And I think it's only because it's not one of those sort of players that has this big, you know, league-wide reputation for messing up that mm. Davinson Sanchez is sort of, yeah, there's a bit of contact and Lacazette's gone down. But I was very surprised to see so much heavy debate about whether or not it was a penalty. Me too, yeah. When I first saw it, I thought it was a, it was a stone wall. I, mean, I was kind of thinking, what happens if Lacazette does make contact with the ball there? If he has a shot, it, it comes out, uh, maybe Lloris saves it, and then uh, the follow-through, Davinson Sanchez still takes him out. That would still be a penalty, right? Yeah. Or I saw somebody else say that, <laughs> actually, ridiculously, um, it you can even justify saying it's even more of a foul because he slices it so badly. He yeah. actually has a chance to go and collect the ball and have another have another <laughs> go. Obviously, if he smashed it into the crowd or the, into the stands, yeah. um, the, the people sort of go, oh, well, he got his shot away, but the ball was still there for Lacazette to, to go and get it back. And, and as soon as Sanchez has made contact and he's gone down, well that chance to sort of keep playing has gone for Lacazette, mm, I guess. Very true, yeah. Well, things went from bad to worse for Spurs when Eric Lamella got himself sent off for a second buckle, buckable offence. Um, how did you feel when that happened, Matt? Is that the most Lamella thing to ever happen? I mean, Jermaine Janus was on Match of the Day saying it shouldn't have been a, a sending off. Did- yeah, that is the most Lamella thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> as, soon, as soon as I saw it, I just thought, who else? Like, who else Isn't it only his first Premier League red card? Or did I read that right? It or, is, yeah. it is yeah. but there's always... Yeah. He he is he must be the most booked Spurs player of all time in the Premier League. Like he just cannot help himself but get a yellow. And and unfortunately, it is the way he plays. He's very much an on the edge kind of character. He's got that that fight about him. Um, stuff like that annoys me a lot. It annoys me even more when you're in possession of the ball. <laughs> I just think. What business have you got elbowing someone? Like, just focus on playing football. If, if I believe it was it Cedric, I believe it was. Uh, Tierney, Tierney, yeah. Oh, Tierney, sorry. If Tierney wants to foul you or wants to get the ball or whatever, right? That's his job, and your job is to keep the ball. So, what, what business have you got flinging your arms about? It was just such, especially after the brilliance of the goal. It was just Lamella in a nutshell. Mm. I do sort of have a bit of sympathy for players in that situation, though, because sometimes you will sort of put your arm out to try and hold off a defender. Mm. And if it's an inch lower than that, it's probably not a problem, is it, really? But just because it sort of made contact with his with his chin, uh, he just was, it was just a bit too high with his arm, really, and, he, and he's got he's got a second yellow card for it. But, uh, yeah, it was a bit silly, as you say. And he, he came on with the intention of winding Arsenal's players up. You could tell, couldn't you, Lamella? He, he was straight into all the tackles and stuff. So sort of, it sort of felt like it was coming. Yeah, I, yeah, I watched, it always is. I, I watched the game with uh, with Phil Costa, um, uh, who's also obviously an Arsenal fan, as people know, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And oh, really? <laughs> Couldn't tell, tell from his Twitter. <laughs> and um, and he, we just said sort of uh, Lamella had come on, and he tried to trip David Luiz up. I think the very first thing he did, he got into a bit of a verbal spat with Granite Xhaka, and Xhaka bit back a little bit. And we just said to each other, just. Don't even answer. Don't don't do anything. Don't get sucked into it. Lamella's just going to wind himself, up. <laughs> yeah. and and that's exactly what he ended up doing. Yeah, and well, you saw the incident with him and Anthony Marshall earlier in the season as well. So I guess this is uh, yeah. a, a bit of sort of uh, karma for that, you might say. Um, speaking of Phil Costa, a quote from him after the game, he said, "Deserve that, but my God, we make everything so unnecessarily difficult." Would you agree with that assessment, Lewis? 
you do you do sort of sit there and wonder why do I put myself through this? <laughs> Even when they they're up against ten men, uh, I don't know what that was. If the players, if it had suddenly dawned on them that like. Oh god, it'd look really bad if we lost this now. <laughs> um, and and they got I don't know. It, it was really strange. Just after seventy minutes of playing brilliantly and keeping the ball at will, and not letting Spurs have anything, anything in in terms of chances. And I don't know. The occasion seemed to suddenly dawn on them, and they were all terrified of of losing from a winning position. But <laughs> we got there in the end. Indeed. And Matt Spurs rallied in the last fifteen minutes, nearly equalised with Harry Kane hitting the post there. But it was oh. it was too little, too late in the end. Were you, were you frustrated by the overall performance and the approach to the game, or or is this just the sort of thing you've become accustomed to under Mourinho now? Actually, the the I haven't even thought about Mourinho. This has got nothing to do with him, in my <laughs> opinion. Um. I've seen, I was very frustrated. Of course I was. And you think, bloody hell, Spurs. You, you start playing, right, with 10 men and 15 minutes to go. Why couldn't you just stand that for the whole game? <laughs> I, I, I've seen so much on, on, online made of the fact that Mourinho and his assistant are constantly shouting to press, constantly trying to get the team up the field. Um, the team selection and the tactics were exactly the same as we've been in the last five games and Spurs have won um, prior to Sunday. So what is it? That is nothing to do with Mourinho. What is it about these players that just turn up to Arsenal without fans, by the way? So there's not that sort of daunting element um, that just makes you play that bad. Because I can guarantee, right, whether it's last week, this week, or next week, you play that game at Tottenham and they win, <laughs> right? Spurs. Arsenal haven't won at Spurs since 2014, I believe. Thomas Rosicky scored an absolute banger. Um, I believe that was the last time that Arsenal won away at Tottenham. So why is it, like earlier in the season, you can go and win 2-0 and you can attack and everything's great, and all of a sudden you get on the bus and you drive a couple of miles down the road to another empty stadium <laughs> and, and, and you shit it. I just, I was absolutely baffled because, like I said, Mourinho is the same team um, that's been put out last few weeks that have been scoring for fun and not conceding many. Um, you know, me and Lewis had a little bit of a... A brief encounter on Twitter and he said they looked nervous and that was it. Mm. We just looked, we panicked so much on the ball and off the ball. I think what Arsenal did really well, especially in the early stages was just knock it in behind a few times. They knocked it, uh, they knocked it over the back. Um, Smith Rowe and Lacazette and who was in the right? Uh, um, Saka were all sort of running in behind one or two times. And I think it, it panicked Spurs a little bit and they thought, you know what? We better drop deep. We're in a little bit of bother. And that was it. That was it. From then on, just could not hold the ball. They look so nervous and I can't for the life of me think why. Yeah, that's it. It's, there's a lack of courage in this team, it seems, really, which is something that, I don't know, Mourinho, you would think he would be the sort of player to, uh, sort of manager to fire his players up for, for this sort of occasion. But, 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 but they play within does. themselves. Yeah. I'm sure he's done the same thing and I just don't know why it happens at Arsenal and it's not a Mourinho thing because... Mm. You know, there's been two wins in 28 in the Premier League era. The book has to stop with him, though. Ultimately, doesn't it? With the with the the overall sort of form this season, it's you've got you've got to blame yeah. you've got to blame someone, I guess. <laughs> you know what? I, I will blame him, but if um if you know he brings home a couple of trophies to Tottenham, who knows? All I know is that I I've got this gut feeling that Spurs and Arsenal will meet again this season. Oh yeah, in Europe. In um, Europe, and it's going to be it's going to be big. So I'm, I'm looking forward. To that. Well, then you can test that theory over two legs, I guess, can't you? The home and away theory. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's mind blowing. <laughs> uh, well, Manchester City moved a step closer to the title with a three 0 win away at Fulham on Saturday night. Um, Lewis, what did you make of Pep Guardiola's decision to play in an unorthodox for him anyway five three two formation here? Do you think it's wise to tinker with a winning team, or given City's healthy lead at the top is is now a good as time as any to to experiment a little bit? Yeah, I did double take a little bit when I saw the lineup, and then because it's Pep Guardiola, you wonder if he's doing something mad, like mm. putting John Stones up front or something ridiculous like that. Because you know he now and then gets bored and does just shove someone in a different position that they've never played before. Uh, I think it then you know when you when you think about it, I think it makes perfect sense. City are miles clear; they're going to win the Premier League. Uh, Canter, they're probably going to win it with five or six games to spare. Um, if not now, then when? You know, the the points that are on the line, I guess, don't matter as much as they would in another season in these games or earlier in the season because you've got such a healthy lead at the top of the table. And if this is something that he wants to have in the back pocket for a European game when 
when it does matter, then it's the perfect time to test a few things like that and make sure the players know their jobs. Mm. Here's, a, here's a semantic question for you. You're a guy who knows his tactics. When when teams play three defenders, uh, three centre-backs, two wing-backs, is that 5-3-2 or is that 3-5-2? Oh. It seems to be there seems to be no consensus on it really, does it? No, it's weird. I Yeah, I I don't know. I I feel like I feel like people maybe refer to it more as a as a five when it's when you've got two up front. Like you hear a lot of three four three, but you mm. don't hear a lot of three five two. Mm. I mean, ultimately, it doesn't really matter, does it? But um, but yeah, no, I, I don't know. Like just as equally, the way that like Alexander Arnold at Robertson play at Liverpool, sometimes you could say that they're just they've just got two at the back, but no one yeah. can say that for some reason. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I- so I think that all depends on the wide players, though, in that situation. If they're actual it, defenders, it, would you say it's 5-3? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah, exactly. That too. Exactly. That's, it depends if it's a, a, a very attacking fullback like at Liverpool or you're asking you know, a wide player to do a bit more of a defensive job. But, like I mean, Hudson-Odoi at Chelsea has been playing wing-back, hasn't he, recently? Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm. um, Cancelo can sort of... He's the three, the five, and the two. He can just do what he wants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of players doing what they want, John Stones opened the scoring for City in the second half. He's now got four goals in his last 10 Premier League games. Ilkay Gundogan is City's top scorer with 14 in all competitions this season, but they've had 19 different goal scorers. Um, does that suggest to you, Matt, that if they if they can sign a prolific striker in the summer and, and keep uh, having goals come in from all over the team, they're just going to be extremely difficult to stop, aren't they, next season? It's going to be ridiculous, especially, yeah, John Stones, what a turnaround. Yeah. You, you know, that, that makes... That makes me think as well, this is just another layer to Pep Guardiola's squad that you can't rule off the ones that aren't aren't in the team or a bit out of form. You cannot, you know, when someone's out of form at a club and you think, oh, yeah, they're probably going to get sold or they're probably, the manager's never going to pick them again. He just sort of pulls people out from the wilderness and you know, <laughs> somehow gets them back into form. And that's the thing, if you sign, if they sign a striker, it's just, it, it does get to the point where you think it's beyond just winning football matches in England. It's beyond just winning the Premier League. It's a full, you know, hell-bent on world domination approach um, that they can sign a striker. And potentially, you know, Aguero is going to leave. But what I think about City is they don't build teams. They build squads. Mm. You know, it's not just about oh, can we get a striker in to score the goals? It's can we get a striker in to complement this system, to complement that system, to challenge Jesus, to replace Aguero. It's just, their absolute dominance is quite scary. So, yeah, I would say that Haaland has to be the number one target Mm. out of any. Yeah, um, definitely. Certainly the most realistic. Well, that squad's so deep that there's a few rumours at the moment that there's a bit a bit of uh, unhappiness behind the scenes. A few players not very happy about being being dropped recently. And I was thinking only City could be 17 points clear at the top of the table or whatever it is now and uh, and have a behind-the-scenes mutiny. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like such a City thing to do that. But, uh, anyway. but they'll all be happy when they collect their Premier League winner's medal. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. How much of a mutiny is it if it's guys that aren't really playing anyway? It's like, ah, well, never yeah, mind. true, true. <laughs> uh, well, Benjamin Mendy made his first start since the 15th of December in this game. It wasn't bad, but I wouldn't say he was brilliant either. Um, do you think he might be uh, getting moved on in the summer, Lewis? And it's not really sort of worked out for him in the time he's been at the club, I don't think. Yeah, I guess we've, we've seen before the problem with City trying to sort of shift players is just the money they're on and mm. who's going to, you know, not only be able to take Benjamin Mendy and sign him for a fee but then take on his contract as well if he's not going to want to take a, a wage cut which I suppose he probably won't want to do mm. uh, but yeah I mean Cancelo Zinchenko seem to mostly have that left spot now down for all the talk of a striker I think it's not like you're not scoring enough goals at mm. uh, City so um, I would maybe even say that a, a sort of a top class left back could be the the first priority yeah. ahead of a striker instead in the summer. Yeah, that's been long overdue. I mean, they've not bought one a proper left back since Mendy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they did get Angelino, but I don't think that really counts. Um, so yeah, I think the last time they sort of spent big money on the left back was Mendy, and yeah, his injury problems have, have just made it a problem trying to get rid of him. I think I think they they probably would have gone for Ben Chilwell a couple of seasons ago if they could, but they couldn't get rid of Mendy. So um, maybe if they can uh, can shift him for. Uh, 
knock down fee this summer they might go in for someone finally uh, Matt I've been impressed with Fulham in recent weeks I, I think they, re- they really play well in the first half of this game but they're still behind Newcastle and Brighton having played a game more do you fear that terrible start to the season is ultimately going to be what kills them I feel like they listened to this podcast when I slagged them off because <laughs> ever since then they've been great um, I don't think yeah, you're the I, only I, one who was slagging them off to be fair <laughs> yeah I, I, I really think yeah that start is going to cost them it's a bit of a shame really because You'd think that they would have figured out their plan of attack and either either they were a bit too nervous about what they could do or they didn't believe themselves, they didn't have the right tactic, but you really would be kicking yourself if you think, God, we, we can put together nice little runs of form and we can we can beat some teams and just too little too late, they, they really will be kicking themselves because it was such a poor start. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it was nine, nine games without a win, wasn't it? And you think if they just won two of those games, they'd be out of trouble pretty much already. So it's uh... yeah, exactly. And I, I also felt for um, was it the the former City defender who gave away the penalty and the bio, Yeah. Oh, I felt so sorry for him. You just. <laughs> You know, you're playing your former club and you throw in that kind of, <laughs> that kind of shocker. Thanks for that, Tosin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Manchester United went back to second in the league when they won 1-0 at, uh, against West Ham on Sunday night. David Moyes has still never won away at Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea or Arsenal in his 19 years as a Premier League manager. When asked after this game if, if he would have approached the game differently, given a second chance, he said no. Um, do you think West Ham were a bit too scared and negative in this one, Lewis? That's how you know who the real big four are, by the way. <laughs> Just, um... The Sky Four, as they used to call yeah, them, yeah. Yeah, the, the original four. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I think you can maybe just partly put it down to the lack of Jesse Lingard. I thought mm. that was sort of the, the only real difference between the team that and the team that went to to Man City and threatened Man City just a few weeks ago and played really well there. And obviously they've they've got decent results. Leeds, Tottenham recently they've beat both of those. It it's a all since Lingard came into the team. I think that West Ham have had a real threat about them uh, I don't think they were bad at Old Trafford and obviously it was just the just the one goal the own goal that cost them in the end maybe there was a little bit of fear about how dangerous United are when you do give them that space to break mm. and attack but West Ham could have maybe backed themselves a little bit more and thought about the problems they can cause and not just the problems United could have caused them I think yeah well their XG in the first half was zero in this game I saw I think United was only like 0.7 or something so it was a pretty pretty a bad game from both teams, really. Um, I was going to ask you about Jesse Lingard, Matt, but Lewis has sort of answered that question. So I'll ask you this one instead. Mm. Um, Saeed Ben-Rama, I read earlier that he uh, West Ham have won 75% of the games that he started this season. Um, he's still in and out of the team. Do you think it's, it's sort of that should tell Moyes that he, he needs to play more? Um, yeah, I think so. The, the problem is that uh, sometimes when you have these attacking players who are about a bit of flair, Right, and a bit of, um, you know, almost the showboaters. They appear to be a bit of a luxury when you know you're going in for a tough battle. You know what I mean? When you're mm. looking at your, when you're looking at your team sheet for Manchester United away, you think, are we going to dominate the ball, and are we going to have, you know, room to have a luxury player, or are we going to need eleven hard workers who are going to battle behind the ball? And maybe, even though that's stupid, I think because you know Ben Rama could have created <laughs> that may have been a little bit behind the thinking. And it may kind of go against you, you know, when you're that type of player because you just assume, don't you, when you go away to a big team that you're going to need 11 sort of selfless, high work rate players rather than someone who's a bit a bit fancier. But I, I don't feel, that, feel like that with Ben Armour at all. I think he's great. Mm. Uh, well, that's now just one defeat in the last 23 Premier League games for Man United. Uh, before the game, there was uh, lots of rumours doing the rounds. Are they going to Solskjaer's in line for a new contract, Lewis? Um, does he deserve one, do you think? I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer should do a better job. Than he's doing. <laughs> um, I don't. He's. I feel like he's in that middle ground somewhere. He's not doing a great job. He's not doing a job that means he deserves to be sacked. And I think that's very tricky for a club because obviously you know United have been through it a bit with with Van Gaal and with Moyes himself, and then with Mourinho as well. You you don't want to appoint a manager who's going to do a worse job, and they're obviously not taking for granted that he's doing a perfectly okay job. 
is he going to win them the Premier League? And are they trying to, within the next couple of years, win the Premier League? I think I don't think it's a terrible idea to give Solskjaer a new contract, but I think that new contract should come with new expectations mm. as well. And if United look like they do right now, two years from now, then I'd say, well, then that is sort of, you're reaching the territory where maybe he should be sacked. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that as well. I mean, I think he, he's done a reasonable job, uh, particularly this season. Probably deserves a pay rise if he gets them second in the Premier League, you know, considering that wasn't really uh, expected of them before the season began. Um, I do think he is ultimately holding United back. But I also kind of think, you know, last week they made this uh, this overdue appointment of, of John Murto as the club's first ever director of football. Matt, do you think that could be the key to, to getting United back to the top? And do you think it makes sense to keep Solskjaer around to kind of um, help with this, this transition phase? Because he it's a safe pair of hands at the end of the day. You can't deny that, can you, really? Yeah, I feel like that is probably what's going to make or break this sort of decision, and that is how he works alongside Solskjaer. Um, because everyone sort of made the deal of a director of football, sorts out the transfers, you know, is really sort of prominent in scouting and bringing in targets. But then I saw Oligon and Solskjaer saying that he still has the final say, mm. you know, about who comes into his team and... You think there have been stories from many clubs before about friction calls between the manager and director of football. And if they get on, great, great. And if they don't, you know, it makes it an absolute nightmare for the um, for the club. So I really think it is a good signing on on paper. And like the, the thought of it is good. But I think it really depends how he and Solskjaer work together rather as, as opposed to each other. Yeah, it's hard not to feel like they probably see Solskjaer as a bit of a yes man as well, who probably will just sort mm. of like not really, you know, kick up a fuss if, if they, the club do something that he doesn't totally agree with or something like that. Um, Lewis, if they were to get rid of Solskjaer at the end of the season, which I very much doubt they will, but if they were, who do you think they would they could get that would be a guaranteed um, successful appointment? A guaranteed successful <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, appointment? Yeah, I mean, you I, think I, maybe I, Nagelsman, I have, but... I'd have John Murtagh's job if I could guarantee it. Um, <laughs> yeah, Nagelsmann would be right near the top of that list, I think. Um, that no obvious names except for him, mm. I don't think. I don't, United have gone, you know, they had Mourinho. I don't think, I think the worst thing, should I say, that they could do would be to get sucked into this sort of big name thing. And, yeah. and if Zidane were to leave Real Madrid or Allegri, I think still without work, I'd, I'd that's not the way to go for United. They need, you know, you you look around the Premier League and you've got Guardiola and Klopp and and Tuchel at Chelsea now as well. When you're seeing really modern coaches and modern coaches who want attacking football and want to press high and they're so detail oriented, and I think they would have to do something like that. And Nagelsmann would fit the bill perfectly. Yeah. Other than him, there's no now that Pochettino's gone to PSG. There's no sort of obvious candidate. I don't think. Yeah, they should have got Pochettino. Well, they had the chance. I mean, he's not he's not doing an amazing job at PSG so far, is he? But um, yeah, yeah, they only had 14 months to try and sort it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, Leicester significantly strengthened their hopes of playing Champions League football next season with an emphatic five 0 win over Sheffield United on Sunday. Jamie Vardy got two assists Kalecci and Nacho scored a lovely hat trick uh, Lewis do you think we're witnessing a, a changing of the guard in the Foxes front line maybe I think we're seeing a changing of the Vard hey I think, <laughs> it is, uh, I think no. he scored one, one goal sorry for that um, one goal that wasn't a penalty since the middle of December mm. um, just what three months now he's he started the season quite well. A lot of the goals were penalties that he scored quite early on, but he did start the season with quite a few goals and they just seem to have completely dried up and he's, what, 34 now? Um, yeah. It, how many strikers are out there? There are obviously a few, but a very select few strikers out there still scoring a lot of goals at that age. And I think we are now seeing the, the slowing down of Jamie Vardy's goal scoring. I don't know if that means Kalichi and Acho will sort of be the main man at Leicester next year or in a couple of years, or if a new striker might come in. But I do think we're witnessing the end of Jamie Vardy. Yeah, I loved how Kalechi dedicated his Mother's Day hat-trick to all the mothers oh, in the world. Wonderful. I thought that was very sweet. My mum appreciated that too, actually. So there you go. Thanks, <laughs> Kalechi. Uh, yeah, one goal in his last 15 now for Vardy. He thought he'd scored here, but it went down as an Ethan Ampadu own goal in the end. Um, he did get two assists though, Matt. Do you think he could be, uh, you know, become a bit more of a creator than a scorer in, in the latter stages of, of his career? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I don't really think that's his game. I think he would potentially kind of, I don't know, move back to this super sub role, which, which is nothing offensive to him at all. I just mm. think he's still got a fair bit of pace. 
Um, so yeah, if you had a striker on from the start and you think, right, last 15, 20 minutes, Vardy's going to run him ragged with a, a bit of speed in behind, that could suit him um, as he gets on a bit until he loses that pace. But no, I don't really see his his abilities and sort of being a drop deep, you know, sort of creator or a linker of play. And I, I'm not sure it's necessary at Leicester. They've got so many brilliant players, um, so many brilliant creators and passers of the ball and attacking players. I'm not really sure Vardy even needs to do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's been written off before, so it wouldn't surprise me if he goes on a great run now. That's very true, yeah. Uh, Sheffield United announced uh, Chris Wilder had left the club by mutual consent on Saturday night. Um, what do you make of that, Lewis? Because, I mean, I've heard a lot of people expressing sort of outrage at it as if he's been sacked. But if it is mutual consent, if he has sort of fallen out with the club over various things, it's a bit more easy to understand, isn't it? Yeah, I think if the owners want to decide to go sort of a different way in terms of having a director of football and the, the transfer policy... And I think that makes sense. And Chris Wilder, I guess, was largely involved in, in control of transfers last summer. And they spent a hell of a lot of money for very little return. Mm. So he's not covered himself in glory there for all of the great work that he has done. I mean, the the money spent on um, Ram Brewster and uh, Aaron Ramsdale sticks out there. Yeah, so he's yeah. sort of looking at 40, 45 million pounds, I think, between the two of them. And, well... Brewster's had no impact and Ramsdale I thought was quite poor already at Bournemouth and has continued to be poor and was let go from the Sheffield United Academy for nothing after coming through at the club originally so I you know I think in the in the transfer sense if they want to build the squad in a different way and maybe a different style of football then it could make or it does make sense if they're not going to do that, then I think it's it's a bit of madness, to be honest. That they're going to get relegated, which means the idea next season is to get promoted again. And boyhood Sheffield United fan Chris Wilder has already got them promoted from the Championship to the Premier League. So I don't know if there'll be a manager out there better suited to getting them promoted. But if they want to do sort of go in a bit of a different direction when it comes to squad building, then it wouldn't make sense to keep him. Yeah, I saw someone on Twitter saying something similar like, uh, oh, nobody's going to keep them up with the season, but nobody would have had a better chance than Wilder of getting them promoted again next season. I'm like, well, you can't really say that for sure, can you? Mm. It's it's impossible to sort... I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a sad end to the story because, you know, he's a, he's a boyhood Sheffield United fan, got them up from League One, kept them in the Premier League last season, re- you know, did really well. Um, but I think, you know, he's had a stinking season this year, hasn't he? And I don't think it's the, the biggest... Uh, injustice in the world to see him lose his job personally um, under 23 manager Paul Heckingbottom will take charge until the end of the season Matt any thoughts on who who will or should take over from him if anyone um, yeah like Lewis said it's kind of you're kind of trying to figure out what they want to do exactly I couldn't really put a name to it um, there's kind of the obvious one of a, an Eddie Howe um, but then I can't the reason Eddie Howe left Bournemouth is because he wanted something new and I can't see what's new about going to Sheffield United, getting them promoted and then being one of the smaller teams in the Premier League again. Mm. If, if Sheffield United are hell-bent on doing something completely different, like I was suggesting, then you've kind of got to go for someone completely different. Um but yeah, I can't really put... Yeah, one of my friends really was saying um, Mark, Mark Hughes might be a, a candidate and I was thinking, Mark Hughes, I wonder if anyone yeah, would, would take a chance is. on him again. Yeah. <laughs> But, but so what? What's he going to do if he gets them promoted in the Premier League? The same thing he's done at every other club, basically. Right, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't really know what the, what the the benefit of you know. It's not like oh, I'm dying to watch my my Mark Hughes team on a Saturday. <laughs> no one's ever said that. <laughs> Get Neil Warnock back at Bramall Lane. I say, <laughs> relive the glory days. That, there you go. <laughs> serious suggestion. Yeah, uh, Chelsea extended their unbeaten start under Thomas Tuchel to uh, twelve matches when they drew nil nil away at Leeds on in Saturday's early kickoff. Edouard Mendy's now kept nineteen clean sheets and uh, only he did 18 goals for Chelsea I think it's fair to say he's been a very good signing isn't it Lewis he couldn't be worse than the last one <laughs> well yeah the, 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 the <laughs> signing goal yeah I think it was I think it was obvious to everyone that they needed a new goalkeeper um, in the summer I don't think that Mendy is necessarily sort of you know up there with the best goalkeepers in the league you look at Edison and, and Allison obviously stick out mm. Emiliano Martinez maybe at Villa I don't think he's sort of that good but after the last 
couple of seasons, I think Chelsea fans will probably just be very happy to have a goalkeeper that isn't costing them points. <laughs> yeah. What did you make of that save onto the crossbar of his in this game? I've seen it described as the save of the season, but I don't know. Did his, did his touch really alter the ball's trajectory that much? Saves just look better when they hit the bar, don't they? They do, yeah. There's something about it. I thought the one when he was on the floor and he sort of reached up to, to stop it, I thought that was better, personally. Real uh, reaction save. Um, still just two goals conceded under Tuchel. Um, he said afterwards that he wants his side to be a bit more clinical, though, Matt. Um, do you think their, their defensively solid approach has almost been a bit too extreme at times? And might they look back on draws with Wolves, Southampton, Man United and Leeds with a bit of regret at the end of the season if they don't finish in the top four, particularly? Um, I don't really know, because... That would suggest to me that he maybe doesn't necessarily trust the strikers. Um, he knows that Timo Werner hasn't hit the ground running. He's trying to get the best out of him. Uh, Giroud's good, but he's not going to back you sort of 15 to 20 a season. I don't know. I, I, I always felt like Tuchel thought, you know, we're not going to be able to outscore teams here. Mm. Um, so we might as well be a bit solid, better, you know, solid defensively. Maybe have the one nils and the two nils. Um, maybe it has seemed a bit extreme when you look at those those games, but then also if they were, you know, they're just sort of relying on one chance to win them. Mm. That's the thing. So you're not. It's it's not like they've been completely outplayed and they're poor defensively. The defensive system has, like you said, um, seen them concede just two goals. So yeah, of course, he's his side to be a bit more clinical. I'm not sure if he completely trusts them or completely thinks that they can be. And to be honest, from what he's inherited, it'll be interesting yeah. to see what he does in the summer because I think a striker is needed. Well, that's it. I mean, to be fair, he's he's uh, he's come in there. He's 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 kept them unbeaten all this time. No one really expected mm. them to get into the top four when he took over. They were struggling under under Frank Lampard. Um, so yeah, maybe. I mean, he's had a hell of a time with them on the training pitch either, really, in, in sort of real terms. So maybe next season they can sort of unleash the dragon a little bit more and, and really start yeah. start start using some of that attacking uh, talent they've got. Um, Go on, Lewis. I think last season as well, did they let in, like, was it the most goals in, like, the last 15 Premier League seasons or something mad like that? On That's the right, yeah, yeah. Season? So I, I think maybe the opposite of Matt, like, he doesn't trust the defence. And I think <laughs> maybe he's, like, come in and thought, right, let's, this is the, the massive problem at this club. Let's fix that first. And then we've got, maybe we have got the players that can go forward. They'll win us some of these games while we're just focusing on keeping a clean sheet. And then sort of once the defence is drilled, we can unleash them a little bit more. Yeah. Um, now, one win, just one win in the last six for Leeds. Uh, they lost Patrick Bamford to injury in this game. How big of a loss is he going to be to them, do you think, Lewis? And, and do you think Rodrigo is, is ready to fill in for him yet? Yeah, that's a huge blow. Bamford's been brilliant this season. So impressive. Obviously, he's their top goal, goal scorer, but... The you know everyone talks about this pressing under Bielsa and he always looks like the key player that gets everything started from the front and he links play up really well and his movement's brilliant. I'm not seeing so many players have goals ruled out in the league for offside this season. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Always just be by like an inch that that Bamford's just you know the pass has come a second too late or he's moved a second too soon. Um, I think they'll massive uh, massively miss him. You've got, I think, you know, not many other goal scorers around there. Rodrigo is, I don't think he's a bad player, but I don't see him getting the goals. Maybe they'll lean more heavily on on Rafinha on a few more goals from midfield, but I do see them really struggling for goals without Bamford. Yeah, how much do you think that shoddy pitch at Ellen Road has slowed them down in recent weeks, Matt? It seems to be getting worse, doesn't it? It feels like I was watching, you know, the old like season reviews from the 1990s. <laughs> yeah. like, I was like watching one of them. I couldn't believe it. I, it really makes you take for granted how incredible like most top-level pitches are mm. these days. Um, if anything, though, I mean, it's the same for both teams on a match day, but these have been playing with it now for a few weeks, so maybe they should be getting an advantage. Technically. Yeah, you, <laughs> you think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I really I don't know quite what's going on. Maybe that part of the country is not so good with the weather. Yeah, I think they had it relayed, didn't they? And it's just like... Oh, is that what they it did. Is? They did it sort of middle of the season. It hasn't hasn't really yeah. worked out. Think, yeah. Were they told they had to have it relayed? I, I think, think so. Of yeah. Injuries or something. Yeah, it's a mess. Anyway, we can say that for sure. Uh, Liverpool kept their top ho- uh, top four hopes alive when Diogo Jota scored against his old club Wolves to give them a 1-0 win on Monday night. It's another clean sheet for Liverpool with Ozan Kabak and Nat Phillips at centre-back. Um, Lewis, do you feel like they've landed on their best available defensive partnership now? Yeah, I don't know if it's the best available defensive partnership um, I think if you're picking just on based on the defence, you'd still maybe want Fabinho in there. Mm. 
but I think it's so important that he's playing in midfield yeah. and, and we've seen that the last couple of games again now, finally, after finally, as, as far as Liverpool are concerned, after so long with, with him at centre-back. I think the the fact that you had, by now it's what, almost, almost the whole season so far, him and Henderson have both been taken out of that title-winning midfield yeah. to have at least one of them back in there now. I, I think that's the big, big difference for them. Mm. I mean, they still aren't quite firing on all cylinders in an attacking sense, Matt. Um, but do you think Diogo Jota's return could hold the key to them, potentially sneaking into the top four by the end of the season? I mean, it was looking pretty bleak for them only a week ago. It's five points in it now. It's, it's suddenly looking a bit rosier, I think. Yeah, it's looking a lot better. And certainly if he can find that form um, from before his injury, then yeah, there's, there's no reason why not. And I think him, he just gives, he gives Liverpool another option going forward. But also, it kind of gives the players that are there a little bit of a kick up the arse. I mean, I think Mane, Salah and Firmino can look behind them and think, who's going to take my place? Shakiri or Origi? <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, they're very comfortable knowing that those two aren't going, to, um, aren't going to be taking their spot if they play a poor game. But I think Jota's really going to kind of ignite, should do a, a bit of a fire into the rest of the front three competitive-wise. And what he brings on the pitch, yeah, he's just a... Just a great football player. He certainly is. Uh, Wolves goalkeeper Rui Patricio suffered a very scary looking head injury towards the end of this game. Um, he was down for 15 minutes receiving treatment. Uh, Nuno Espirito Santo did confirm he's going to be okay after the game. Um, Lewis, incidents like this really freak me out, but you know, unless all players wear Petr Cech style helmets, there isn't really much we can do to prevent them, is there? Uh, no. Um, I think the, the one thing we can just hope is more strenuously implemented is the when there are head injuries that players are subbed off for their own safety and for the safety of everybody else as well obviously they've, they've got the concussion subs now Patricio clearly couldn't continue anyway and that wasn't really a, a theme or a topic um, on Monday night but yeah that's about all we can do because there will be you know it's a it's a sport and people are moving quickly and changing direction and people are going to now and then collide and fly into each other and someone's going to get hurt. Yeah, twice in one season that's happened to Wolves as well now. It must, uh, you yeah. know, really unlucky for them. Uh, Matt, would you say Rui Patricio to John Ruddy is the biggest disparity in quality between the first and second choice <laughs> goalkeeper at any club in the league? Uh, I saw John oh, Ruddy coming on I was oh, like, yeah. what? He's have still seen, in the Premier League. Have you seen Adrian this season? Oh, that's true, actually, yeah. <laughs> oh, they've got they've got they've got they've got Kelleher though, Liverpool, as well, haven't they, to be fair? Yeah. I was just trying to think, but um I'm trying to think who else there is. To be fair, going from Hugo Lloris to Joe Hart's a pretty big drop as well. Ooh. Um is and Kepa who's the city one? At Chelsea? Who oh Kepper, I guess so, yeah, yeah. Well, Probably Caballero by now. <laughs> Zach Steffen is City's second choice. He's actually quite good, although he did pick up a back pass earlier in the season, which is like, <laughs> we're not in the MLS now, mate. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that is the biggest disparity. I honestly, yeah, I had no idea Roddy was there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Everton's Champions League hopes took a massive hit when they were beaten at home by Burnley on Saturday evening. Everton have now lost seven matches at Goodison Park, giving them the 15th worst home record in the league this season. Why do you think they struggle so much on their own ground, Lewis? Because, I mean, I looked it up and they had uh, the 10th worst home record in the league last season, so it's it's not a new thing. I, I don't know. Um, obviously, last season there were still supporters there. This season. I guess Everton last season were roughly the 10th best team in the league. So yeah. at, least, at least then you can make sense of it. But... <laughs> This must make them one of the best teams in the league, one of the very best teams in the league away from home. Even without fans, I don't know if teams are still really approaching games. I think they are differently home and away, and they sort of, you know, go for it a little bit more away mm. um, at home, sorry. And maybe it just suits Everton to play against teams that they can sit back a bit more and, and hit them on the break and not have to break them down like obviously you have to do against Burnley when they come and visit. Yeah, well, Liverpool have lost six um, home games this season since the turn of the year, sorry. Um, Everton have lost five. So it must be a Merseyside thing, I guess. It must be something in the air up there that makes uh, them panic when, they, when they're like, playing at home. And, and like Matt was talking about with the, the North London derby earlier, Everton had no problem crossing Stanley Park and playing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Toffees lost Jordan Pickford's injury in this game and, and with Robin Olsen out injured, they had to turn to third-choice goalkeeper Jao Virginia, who's ex-Arsenal, I believe, isn't he, Lewis? He is, yeah. He was signed when he was you know, 16 or something, yeah. never played for the first team. But that has to be considered a worry, doesn't it, Matt, going down to your third-choice goalkeeper, especially they've got a big game to come against Man City in the FA Cup next weekend, probably the, the biggest game of their season so far. Uh, yeah, but I wouldn't... First off, I think if City want to win, they'll win. It doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. who you've got in goal. 
Um, Manchester City is the better team. But secondly, and no disrespect to Pickford and Olsen, who, you know, at times have actually picked up their form a bit. They're not missing their key players, you know what I mean? It's not like with them, they are the most outstanding goalkeepers and can stop anything. Um, obviously, having a third-choice goalkeeper isn't ideal. Um, but, you know, it's not like, it's not comparable to losing one of the world's best in goal. Yeah. Um, who knows? Maybe he... Um, Maybe he's got more of a uh, more of a chance of pulling something out, and this could be the start of it. Yeah, I mean, he nearly threw one in the net in the second half in this game, but he also made a really good save, I think, to deny Vidra making it three one to Burnley. So, uh, yeah, oh, yeah good did. chance yeah. for him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Burnley had thirty four percent possession here, but they managed the same number of shots as Everton and more shots on target. Um, Lewis, would you say that's impressive efficiency from Sean Dyche's side, or or was it more that Everton really struggled free for uh, creativity without uh, Hammers uh, and uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson? Yeah, without Hammers in Jammers. particular, I think. <laughs> Jammers, I know he said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think without Hammers in particular, that's, you know, he's the guy that's going to make things happen, that's going to make Everton click. And it, obviously, it just didn't go right. And Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin, I think Richarlison's, he can do whatever you want him or whatever you need him to do, but he was sort of played a bit more up front with Calvert-Lewin and I'm not sure that was wise without Hammers to sort of push Richarlison a little bit further up the pitch. Yeah. Uh, Burnley's second goal was a wonderful strike from Dwight McNeil. Um, he's only actually scored two goals this season, but Matt, would you, are you a fan of his and, and do you think he's destined for bigger and better things in the near future? I'm a massive fan of his. I can't remember a last great footballer called Dwight. What a great <laughs> Dwight, name Dwight York, well, probably going back to, aren't we? Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Well, if he's anything like Dwight York, would be a great player. <laughs> um, I, I, I do think he's fantastic. I'm really interested to see, and not because I just want you know someone to pick him off and take him away from Burnley. Kind of how he would progress when going to a bigger team. Um, I'm getting a little bit Stuart Downing vibes off of him. <laughs> In the fact that, you know, there is such promise for him. But I wonder how we get on at a bigger team. From what I see in his play, he's incredibly athletic, has fantastic technique. His his crossing is, he always looks like to me he's going to fall over or run it out of play. And he still digs a cross out. <laughs> still, no matter where he is. I Honestly, he'd be, he'd be a massive asset to many, many teams, you know, higher up than Burnley for sure. Yeah, that was a beautiful strike. He might be the best footballer ever to come from Rochdale. I could say that about him, yeah. His, his dad played for Rochdale, actually, Matty McNeil. So he comes from very, very strong football stock, that lad. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, Brighton ended their streak of five Premier League games without a win when they beat Southampton 2-1 on Sunday. For only the second time this season, the Seagulls won a game with a lower XG than the team they beat. Uh, Lewis, do you think Graham Potter will be relieved about that or perhaps a bit annoyed that his, uh, his side didn't create as much as they usually do? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I think he'll take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think he'll probably laugh in the face of everybody who's told him that that what they're doing the process or whatever that it isn't paying off mm. the irony obviously that then they look like one of the the games where they actually don't deserve to win is the one that they actually do go and win i'm i'm happy for brighton i think they've i, I was saying to somebody at the weekend i don't know how many times i've watched brighton this season eight <laughs> times and every time i've watched them they've been the better team and they've not won yeah and it's it's completely ridiculous you know people obviously like to talk about Nowadays, to talk about it being XG and, oh, it's a load of nonsense. They need to change the way they play. It's like, no, take XG out of the conversation completely and just sit down and watch the game. (laughs) We'd all sit there and say, oh, Brighton were good today. They were unlucky not to win. (laughs) Just because XG has been brought into the conversation, people are sort of like, oh, no, better not talk about that. clearly the numbers don't understand what what's actually happening on the pitch. It's like, no, nah, Brighton are playing well. They'll yeah. be fine. Um, you, obviously, at some point, you start to think, like, how is all of this luck going against us? Mm. And, yeah, a little bit of irony that they then go and win without creating too much. Exactly, yeah. Well, I'm going to bring XG back into the conversation and say they have the seventh highest XG in the Premier League this season. So that tells you all you need to know about how well they've wow. been playing and how they've not quite been getting the rub There's of the green. Or United manager. Well, quite. Alex uh, was saying recently the best, uh, the next uh, England manager. I think that would be a pretty decent. Um, I think that's a really next good step. Job. Next step I, for I, him. Yeah. I do think. Yeah, watching when you watch Brighton, I think Graham Potter's that next manager. He, if I was to pick a manager from the bottom half of the league uh, to to sort of take that step up in the way that maybe Brendan Rodgers did when he left Swansea and went to Liverpool, I think Graham Potter is 
primed for, for that sort of yeah, next step. Agreed. Uh, Lewis Duncan, Leandro Trossard got the goals, but Adam Lallana was the star of the show for me. Uh, Matt, how important do you think his return to form could be to Brighton in the last part of this season? Uh, yeah, massive, because he's always proven himself to be a good player if he can just stay fit. Mm. And I think he him coming in is obviously so key, not just as what he can bring, but also it's such a boost to the squad when you've got someone like him who can come in and you know be on his game playing some good football. It just brings the whole quality of the team up. So, yeah, I think he's definitely going to be a, a big part of it. But they're not, like we said, they're not just a one-man team like Lallana. I think some of their players are fantastic, especially mm. Trossard. And I think Pascal Gross as well um, puts in some really good shifts too. And uh, yeah, they just, they just look like, unfortunately, like you said, if they just had a goal scorer, they wouldn't be in such a position, uh, in such a position that they're in because they do play well and they do deserve probably a bit more than the table suggests. Yeah, uh, we'll make that 10 defeats in the last 12 games for Southampton now. They've got Burnley, West Brom and Crystal Palace in the next three. I mean, they're winnable games, Lewis, but if they, if they don't start picking up wins, do you think relegation's a genuine danger for them? I. Right now, I'd think I'd say that they'll be fine. That they've they've just got enough. I think it's seven points to the relegation mm. zone. I think that's enough of a, a cushion, and you'd expect them to win at least one of those games. And I think that's all it would take, really. Yeah, they'll be sort of within touching distance of safety then. Yeah, but one positive they can take from recent results is the fact that Che Adams has now scored in his last three matches. Uh, Matt, does he look like a player to you who's finally acclimatised to Premier League football? Yeah, I think so. I, I also think it's good that he gets given a bit of time. You know, I'm not quite sure you could go about your business acclimatising to Premier League football if you're a massive team. You know, mm. you have a couple of a couple of bad games and everyone's like, oh, he's a flop, he's rubbish, he's this, that and the other. So the fact that he's had you know, a long time to kind of get used to it, away from the spotlight a little bit at Southampton, has probably done really good. And now they're definitely reaping the benefits. And if, if Danny Ings is to leave... Um, you know, kind of like there have been rumours about him leaving and not signing a new contract. And I guess this is a massive positive that they could potentially have someone to, to step up when they when they lose an insane amount of goals. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's really started to, to get his uh, finishing game going, Adams, I think. it's That uh, goal against Sheffield United was mad. He scored a great one against City that got um, disallowed just for, off for a marginal offside last week, actually, as well. He's just been called up into the Scotland squad for the first time as well. So oh. I suspect oh, really? we'll see him at the Euros. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I didn't even know he was a, a Scottish international, to be I honest with you. I think he did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, good luck to him. Um, West Brom sunk further into the mire when they were beaten 1-0 away at Crystal Palace on Saturday. The winning goal was a penalty from cool hand Luka Mil- Mil- Milivojevic. I always struggle with that name. Um, he's now scored 27 Premier League penalties since making his Crystal Palace debut in 2017. That's more than any other player during that time. Uh, would you say he's the, be- he's the best penalty taker in the league, Lewis? Oh, um, are you asking me if he should sign for Man City? Well, we need a penalty taker <laughs> desperately, yeah. So, <laughs> um, You never think he's going to miss, do you? Yeah. It's a ridiculous record, that. Speaking of Man City penalties, there was some talk in the build-up to the Southampton game that, that Pep Guardiola had finally decided that Edison was going to be allowed to take a penalty. So when we got one against Fulham, I was like, brilliant, Edison's going to take the penalty. And they let Aguero take it, and he nearly missed it. So I was like, come on, just do it, Pep. <laughs> we were 2-0 up, like, just do it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, Matt, I can't understand why the referee was asked to look um, at that clear handball from, from Darnell Furlong on the pitch side monitor here. Uh, why, why can't the VAR just make that decision for him? To me, that would just streamline the whole process so much if they just tell the referee oh yeah there's been a clear handball you've not seen it but just give the penalty yeah I think that too but then on the flip side of it it looks like VAR's in control of the game and I think that's actually what people are against is it's supposed to be a video assistant referee who assists by nature you know and sort of gives advice here and there I think if they start calling the shots you might as well just take the referee off and let them do it all right but let's uh, right you know the, the non-video assistant referee is is the lines men and women isn't it right yeah the referee doesn't overrule their offsides does he <laughs> they don't go oh yeah you've, you've missed an offside there but uh don't worry about it we'll just play on shall we but then I uh, technically that's not their job like they're there to assist uh 
Well, I, I mean, I've got a real beam about it about penalties at the moment after that one that um, that City didn't get against Southampton last week. I thought that was an absolute joke, and not not just because it happened yeah. to City. I thought it was just so dumb. And I was reading um, Dale Johnson from from ESPN. He does his uh, his Monday VAR thread, and he he was saying yesterday. Um, Remember, the aim of VAR isn't to get every decision correct; it's to fix clear and obvious errors. There's a crucial difference. And I was thinking, I'm not having to go at Dale at all here, but I was thinking, I thought it was to get every decision correct. <laughs> That's why I was in favour of it. What, what do you think about? All this, Lewis. I, I, I think. Well, I, I think. Firstly, I think Dale's right in terms of that's what they'll that's what they'll tell you. The, mm. the you know they will never get every. Dec- there are so many decisions that fall into a grey area. But then you come back to what you said about him checking the screen, and it's like, well, if it's that clear and obvious that we have to change the decision, it, then the ref shouldn't go and look at it, should he? Like, yeah. it, you know, there's. It feels like that the clear and obvious stuff is sort of used when they want to use it, and then sometimes something is overturned, but you're like, really? Was that worth it? Like there was, um, there was something last week. I can't remember what, uh, now, but you know, the, the Fulham goal against Tottenham obviously comes to mind. There was something else I saw last week, um, maybe in the Champions League, but I was just watching it thinking to myself three years ago, that never would have been given or that goal mm. would have been allowed or whatever it was and nobody would have complained. Yeah. The, 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 none of the players on the opposing team complained. I'm sitting it here at home not complaining or not thinking, oh, that should have been a penalty or that shouldn't have been a goal. Like, nobody would have said a word. And when we're taking, you know, two, three minutes at a time to talk about decisions that previously... Nobody would have cared, not not cared, but nobody would have really moaned about it if it was given the other way. And it's that borderline. It's just like, what are we doing here? (laughs) Yeah. Well, the one at Selhurst Park, I reckon the referee went over to the monitor and looked at it for about a second before going, yeah, penalty. And it's like, I saw the first replay on TV and I knew it was a penalty. So the VAR should just be able to go, yeah, it's a penalty, just give it. And that's it. And it's done. And it's just so, so much quicker and everyone understands it a bit more. And that is, you know, to me, the VAR actually assisting the referee and working together to, to come to the right decision. But yeah, I will never understand the way it's been implemented. It's, it's so frustrating to me. But anyway, um, Wilfred Zahar refused to take the knee before the game after recently describing the gesture as degrading and something we just do. Um, Lewis, far be it from us as, as three white guys to sit here and, and really have a a qualified opinion on this but but do you feel like that gesture has kind of run its course a little bit now I do I I thought Wilfred Zaha spoke really well he spoke about you know we're doing this before every game and then we're still getting abuse online anyway yeah. we're still getting messages and you know racist stuff thrown at us so what are we doing it for um I I think it is just sort of people just sort of go through the motions now and it's become just part of that routine it's like uh whistle yeah one knee Right back up, let's play, and it it doesn't mean anything. It's it's lost its meaning. It's mm. very you know, and even as sort of just observers sitting at home watching the games, you can feel that as well. There's no, you know, it was quite striking. I think the first few times you saw mm. it, and and a very nice message and gesture. Obviously, the intent behind it. There's nothing wrong with it, but it just looks so empty. And if it's not aiding the cause at all then what's the point yeah Matt do you think players should be allowed to keep doing it if they want to or does it does it have to be kind of all or nothing would it cause problems to say I was thinking of imagine a, a white player refused to do it would, would it sort of sow seeds of doubt about why they'd refuse to do it would they start getting accusations of racism and it just becomes very messy yeah that's that's exactly what happens I mean there's no way that as you say, like a white player could have said exactly what Wilfred Zaha said, and it would have been equally understandable. But coming from a white player, you'd it would just cause all sorts of havoc. And I think Lewis is right; it's become so diluted that it's just sort of, yep, down on one knee, back up again, right? Let's kick off, come on, boys! Like it's just, it really has sort of lost lost what it was meant to stand for in the first place. I think if you were to give the option, right, and say players can do as they please, you'd probably find that teams would come up with a team answer. Yeah. Um, just to avoid, you know, any individuals being picked out, they'd probably decide as a team, right, we're all going to, we're all going to not. Yeah. 
Yeah, Lewis is right. Really odd. Lewis is right. I remember the first game back after lockdown. I think it was um, Aston Villa, Sheffield United, and thinking, "Wow, that was really powerful." And then it just lo- it's just lost it every week. And they probably they yeah. probably should have quietly retired it at the end of the uh, end of last season. I suspect they probably will do that at the end of this season now. Um, but it'd just be interesting to see if they if they replace it with anything mm-hmm. meaningful or just pretend that racism is not a problem anymore and we can all move on from it. <laughs> would be a bit of a shame, wouldn't it? Really. Um, Sam Allardyce said after this game, "There are 27 points available and 20 needed. We can only afford to drop seven points." I mean, you can't fault his maths, can you? I think we've said that about it before this season. He is, you know, up there with the very best mathematicians in the Premier League, I would say. Um, Sheffield United are down. Um, I think West Brom are down. Uh, who do you think will be joining them, Matt? Hmm. We've got Fulham, Newcastle, Brighton, I think, are the three sort of in that scrap. I would actually say Newcastle. I, I worry for them only because I feel like Fulham and Brighton have got a handle on how they play and how they look to create. And if they do pull off their, their creation chances and they do get in the areas that they've been getting into, they'll score goals and they'll pick up points. Newcastle just seem to be hoping. They just seem to be hoping <laughs> that one team is going to be worse off than they are. And I, they, I think they're really going to struggle. So I'm going to say Newcastle. They play each other on the final day, by the way. Do they? Ooh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, well, speaking of Newcastle, um, I mean, the Friday night game always seems to end up being really boring and Newcastle won, Aston Villa won was no exception. Uh, Newcastle have won zero games this season without Callum Wilson. Uh, Aston Villa have won one game in the last two seasons without Jack Grealish. Was this therefore the most nailed on draw in Premier League history, Lewis? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It must have been up there. I think (laughs) Newcastle, like sort of to, to go back on or build on what Matt just said a little bit, I think the difference to me you look at the bottom of the league there and you've got Brighton and Fulham and I feel like Brighton and Fulham win points I feel like Newcastle just get points when the other team don't win them (laughs) (laughs) but by default that's how it works somebody has to take the points from this match and if the other team doesn't do enough to take them then Newcastle just happen to end up with them um and that's sort of what you saw I guess a little bit against against Villa Villa didn't create enough they scored the one goal and then let Newcastle come on to them a little bit towards the end. And they had one chance, I think, before they scored, then they obviously did score the goal. Yeah, it's not inspiring to watch. Well, it's not inspiring to watch Newcastle ever, I don't think. And it's (laughs) not inspiring to watch Aston Villa without Jack uh, Jack Grealish. So it was, yeah, never going to light things up. Yeah, well, Jamal Lascelles did equalise in the 94th minute uh, after they'd gone behind in the 86th minute. I suppose, Matt, I mean, they could have easily given up when they went one goal, goal down. Does that does that fight back at the end suggest they might just have the mentality to get themselves out of trouble? Um, no, actually. I just no. think it's purely coincidental. <laughs> he managed to get his head... Uh, he, he, he managed to get his head on something. Um, and if he didn't make that run, then we're sitting here talking about a loss and a lack of mentality. So no, I think that's purely just coincidental, and they Fair need enough. to rely on something a bit more, um, uh, a bit more sort of reliable. Basically, they yeah. need to have a plan of action rather than just God. I hope he, I hope he connects with this header. Yeah, that, that can't be a plan to stay up. There you go. Then Newcastle are going down. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, well, on that note, uh, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the Premier League Weekend Review podcast. I've been Dan Burke, and thanks to Matt Froelich and Lewis Ambrose for coming on and, and keeping it uh, civil after after the North London derby. Uh, next week's show is going to be a little unusual as it's kind of a Premier League and FA Cup hybrid weekend. Um, but we will be ba- we will be about to talk about all of those games, and we should hopefully have some time to answer some listener questions about all things English football too. Um, so if you've got anything you want to ask, please send it to podcast at onefootball.com Angelina Kelly will be back with the Women's Football Show on Wednesday and I'll be back on the Champions League Show with Joanna Bueno on Thursday be sure to check those out and we will catch you here again next week (laughs) 